Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This season, we've been going through the history of the medieval state of Burgundy, from its origins as a duchy of France, to its expansion under the great dukes, to its seemingly fatal blow in the defeat and death of Charles the Bold. This episode, we'll see what happens after the Battle of Nancy and see what legacy the Dukes really left behind. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com. Or, of course, find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 6, Episode 6. It's Burgundy, Part 6, Mary and the Rest. And this is The Almost Forgotten. After the sudden and violent death of Charles the Bold, Burgundy was left in a state of turmoil. Unlike France, it wasn't a kingdom where you might expect a battle for the throne, but in the end, its territorial integrity would remain intact. It wasn't like the Holy Roman Empire either, which might have stayed an empire so long, because it was so many disparate places that the emperor had little real power. Burgundy, on the other hand, was held together by the strength of one man, or at least one man at a time, the duke. The last four dukes had cobbled together this state of Burgundy out of a bunch of different territories. Its enemies would now work to tear it apart. But some of it would be more resilient, more united, than anyone had envisioned. After his death on the field of Nancy, Charles the Bold's titles passed to his only heir, his 19-year-old daughter, Mary. Mary had been born in Brussels, which was in Brabant, the capital of the Burgundian Netherlands, not that such a thing truly existed as we might see it, had already begun to shift from Flanders to Brabant. She was given her name by her godfather, who would eventually become Louis XI. He had been in Brussels at the time of her birth, hiding out from his father, the king at the time. Louis named his goddaughter after his own mother. By the time she was a teenager, She had been raised to be a queen, or something like that. Her father had arranged for no less than half a dozen different marriages over her lifetime, but never finalized any of these, Eh, let's call them treaties, because that's what they were. She was still unmarried when Charles was killed on the field of Nancy. Mary, sometimes called Mary the Rich, had become the Duchess of Burgundy, at least theoretically. In actuality, what happened was a fight about what she was actually allowed to inherit, being a woman and all. Not that everyone was thrilled with her forebearers' reigns either. Certainly the Netherlands prospered under the Dukes of Burgundy, but with that prosperity came with it the sense from the burghers that they were getting pushed out of the political process. And for sure, under Charles the Bold, the duchies and counties of the Low Countries chafed a bit when he asked them to send soldiers. They weren't interested in funding and manning his wars against his eastern neighbors. Sure, wars with France or England had been vital to their self-interests in the past, but not wars against Switzerland or Lorraine. 
added in was the fact that each successive duke seemed to clamp down more and more on their privileges, which also rankled the leading citizens of each town. Each town had been used to significant autonomy and special privileges, which were often commiserate with their own influence, prestige, and wealth. But this also led to centralization of government that served to unite the territories. So the various territories of the Low Countries convened the States General, a representative assembly. It was not the first time they had done this. It had started under Philip the Good, albeit reluctantly by him, as a way of getting his territories together in the Netherlands so he could listen to their grievances and address them in exchange for getting things he wanted from them, mostly taxes. The fact that this meeting of the States General didn't just break apart and everyone didn't go their separate ways shows they agreed upon or even fundamentally believed in at least some amount of unity in the Netherlands despite the death of the Duke. What they decided upon was that they would accept Mary as their new Duchess with a few conditions. So, within about a month of Charles the Bold's death, Mary had to deal with turmoil in her low countries namely that they said she hadn't quite acquired them yet. With little or no armies to speak of, she and her advisors decided to accept whatever it was the States General wanted. Mary was not alone in this. Some of her father's surviving counselors stayed by her side, such as her cousin Adolf of Cleves, who, according to Richard Vaughan, quote, stayed at his post after Charles's death, becoming Mary of Burgundy's lieutenant and governor general, at the end of January 1477, unquote. So she had some support, including significant help and guidance from her stepmother, Charles the Bold's widow, Margaret of York. They certainly advised her on the predicament in which she and Burgundy found themselves. Its army had been slaughtered a few times at this point in the last year. Not that they were out of manpower, but it wasn't like there was an army fielded ready to defend the lands and some of its territories were revolting against her, while France was ready to just take everything. France saw this as a chance to extend its borders into some of its old lands, and to some new ones. The States General offered Mary a chance to solidify some amount of power, even if it meant giving up some theoretical power that she didn't actually have at this point because her status was in limbo. So Mary agreed upon the Groot privilege, as it's known in Dutch, or the Great Privilege in English. It allowed the states of the Netherlands more individual autonomy, decentralizing the government which had been centralized, giving her a council of advisors, and requiring their consent if she wanted to declare war, get married, or, of course, levy taxes. Many of these concessions were rights that the states had held prior to the Burgundian takeover, and the group privilege would eventually be referred to by these states when arguing against the imperial regime that would cause major problems for them just a century later. But it gave Mary a real power base, and it protected them against simply being swallowed up by France. Speaking of France, King Louis XI saw the death of Charles as his opportunity to act. He had sat patiently throughout most of the wars that Charles the Bold fought against his neighbors, he never really attacked Burgundy, because Charles would have almost certainly turned to fight Louis if Louis acted. And yes, despite what happened, the Burgundian army had been considered one of the most, if not the most powerful in Western Europe, 
before Charles squandered it in the Alps. And also, if France went to war with Charles again, then maybe Brittany would attack, and England might come in too. So Louis was concerned about what would stem from going in to just take Dijon. Instead, he waited. And when the Swiss and Lorrainers took care of his dirty work for him, and Charles was out of the picture, that's when Louis the Universal Spider invaded the territory of his goddaughter. With little defensive force to speak of, Burgundy capitulated quickly. Louis had soon occupied the original Duchy of Burgundy, as well as Franche Comte. He also invaded and soon occupied territory in the north, the outer extent of the Low Countries, namely Artois and Picardy. All the while, he was trying to convince Mary that she should be married to his son, the young Dauphin Charles. But Mary didn't trust her very untrustworthy godfather, so she didn't go that route. She was undoubtedly advised on this, as she was on most other things, again by her stepmother Margaret of York. Margaret is worth a mention because, like seemingly all of the duchesses of Burgundy, she was a strong, capable, and politically savvy woman. She suggested Mary not only follow her father's ambitions of having her marry the son of the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, but to agree to it immediately. Mary was also advised by Anthony, Charles's half-brother. Anthony, known as the Bastard of Burgundy, was Philip the Good's second son. The oldest, Cornea, had been killed in the 1450s. Anthony was highly regarded and given several titles, although because of his birth status, nothing as high as Count or Duke or Margrave. He had been captured after the Battle of Nancy, but he cooperated with Louis to help keep the Duchy of Burgundy from open rebellion. Despite this, he was also apparently a big part of the engagement of Mary to Maximilian, the son of the Holy Roman Emperor no doubt working connections that he had to make sure the imperial side remained in talks, which was not exactly the ideal outcome for Louis. It was a quick engagement as far as these things went at the time, and by August of 1477, Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian of Habsburg were married. Maximilian was two years younger than Mary, 18 at the time of the wedding, and he was chosen in part because of his future inheritance and familial ties but he had had enough of a reputation already that he was chosen in part because Mary and Margaret thought he might actually do a good job of defending Burgundian territories from Louis. He got to work quickly, gathering forces and getting ready to fight. Although the Burgundian armies had been crushed by the Swiss at Nancy, this did not destroy their ability to fight for long. They still had strong allies, and there were still men who would be able to reform an army. Maximilian was soon put to the test to defend what were essentially now his territories, that is, what his children would inherit. Speaking of getting to work quickly, Mary and Maximilian's son Philip was born in July of 1478. Maximilian gathered an army, which included Charles the Bold's allies Jacques of Savoy and Engelbert of Nassau, who, like his father, would be named Governor of the Netherlands in his career. Engelbert's great-nephew would wind up being that William of Nassau who became William of Orange and played such a large role in the Low Countries a century later. William of Orange's ties to the Burgundian Netherlands were real, and they were over a century old. Maximilian and his allies took their army to defend Burgundian holdings in the region. They met, and the Burgundian army formed up pike squares, thanks to the advice of Jacques of Savoy, 
who had seen how effective they had been in Nancy against him and Charles. The use of pike squares would drastically change warfare after Nancy and would be adopted all over Europe, and they stayed in vogue until Maurice of Nassau and his cousin William Lewis developed advanced tactics for musketeers. But that's all covered in Season 4, Episode 7. Anyway, thanks to the tactics they learned after getting their butts kicked by the Swiss, Maximilian and his Burgundians defeated the French army they encountered, stemming the onslaught. But then, the Prince Bishopric of Utrecht rebelled in 1481 against their Prince Bishop, David of Burgundy, who happened to be Philip the Good's third illegitimate son. Maximilian was dealing with fighting in France, a war in the north of the Netherlands against Gelders, and a rebellion now in the heart of the Low Countries. He wasn't making a bad show of it, but then, in 1482, tragedy struck. Mary was out hunting when her horse tripped and fell upon her. She held on for a while, but she soon died. Burgundy was again thrown into turmoil. Maximilian would be regent for their son Philip, but he was not exactly welcome in the Low Countries yet. In order to avoid further war with France, while all of the Netherlands threatened revolt, he agreed to the Treaty of Arras. In this, Louis gained Franche-Comte and Artois, but not Flanders, which was still a French fiefdom. Flanders, however, rose up in revolt after the death of Mary. Utrecht was taken care of pretty quickly. David of Burgundy was reinstalled thanks to intervention by Maximilian and his allies. Armies led by Juste de la Lange, first cousin of that famous knight-errant Jacques de la Lange, defeated rebel forces, as did an army led by Frederick of Egmont. Frederick has significant ties to the Dutch leadership in the following century. His great-granddaughter would marry William the Silent. Another set of great-grandchildren were Philip de Montmorency, the Count of Horn, and Floris de Montmorency, who undertook an ill-fated mission to deliver news to Philip II, King of Spain, who also happened to be Maximilian's great-grandson. Over the next decade, acting as the regent of Burgundy, Maximilian was forced to put down rebellious cities, and of course, Ghent was notable as being the most difficult and persistent threat. At one point, Maximilian entered Bruges to negotiate and was imprisoned there for three months. Cities outside of Flanders stayed loyal, though. Antwerp benefited from more favor by the ducal government because of its loyalty, hastening the already unfolding shift in power from the Flemish cities to the Brabantine ones. After these revolts were dealt with, Maximilian headed east. He defeated a Turkish invasion and then returned to invade France once again. The states general were not interested in war, though, but neither were the French. The new French king, Charles VIII, Louis had died, was embroiled in conflict in Italy and wanted nothing to do with a war with the Low Countries. He also ignored the engagement of his son with Mary and Maximilian's daughter and instead arranged for a marriage with the daughter of the Duke of Brittany. This secured his western border, but it was further grounds for a Burgundian attack. So he agreed upon a new treaty, the Treaty of Senlis in 1493. This acknowledged French control of the Duchy of Burgundy and the Somme region, but it returned French Comte and the County of Artois to the state of Burgundy. 
It also ended the regency of Maximilian, giving his son Philip control at age 16. Philip was still called the Duke of Burgundy, despite the fact that the actual Duchy of Burgundy was not in his hands anymore. But he was the Duke of Brabant, Limburg, Lothier, and Luxembourg, Count of Artois, Flanders, Hainaut, Zealand, and Holland, as well as the Count of Burgundy, that is, Franche Comte, and he had a couple of other titles smattered in there too, I'm sure. Meanwhile, Maximilian's father died, and he became the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Although he wasn't named emperor for another 15 years, because that's the empire for you. The young Duke of Burgundy, Philip, known as Philip the Fair or Philip the Handsome, was soon married. The lucky woman was Joanna, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Aragon and Castile, respectively. In true Burgundian fashion, it was a double marriage, as Mary and Maximilian's daughter married Ferdinand and Isabella's only son, John. It was just a political alliance to ward off growing French power, but it soon turned into much more than that. Joanna's brother John, the Prince of Asturias, died in 1497, and her older sister died not long after, leaving Joanna next in line for the Spanish thrones. This was an unexpected result of the marriage alliance. Ferdinand and Isabella were still alive at the time, but eventually, Joanna was named Queen of Castile and Leon, and Philip was named King. Now, King Ferdinand outlived Philip, so he was never king of a united Spain. Before he died, however, Philip and Joanna had six children together. The eldest would be set up for quite an inheritance. This young Habsburg was, through Philip, called the Duke of Burgundy, albeit in title only, but was, in actuality, the Lord of the Netherlands, which included all those duchies and counties, in 1506 upon the death of his father. When Joanna died in 1516, he inherited her crowns of Castile and Aragon, becoming king of Spain. And when his grandfather, Maximilian, died in 1519, he inherited all of his lands too, becoming the Archduke of Austria and the senior Habsburg. He bought off the electors of the Holy Roman Empire, pushed aside other candidates, and was crowned king of the Germans in 1520. He became the de facto Holy Roman Emperor, and in 1530, he was finally officially crowned in Rome by the Pope. Through his person, he united Spain, Germany, northern Italy, and the Low Countries into one massive, well, I hesitate to call it a state because that would suggest unity beyond just their leader, but I don't want to digress too much. This man, of course, was Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Germany, King of Italy, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Styria, Count of Tyrol, King of Naples, King of Castile, Leon, Aragon, Sicily, and of course, Duke of Brabant, Limburg, Lothier, and Luxembourg, Count of Artois, Flanders, Haino, Holland, and Zealand, and Count of Franche Comte. I know I missed a few in there. You could say Burgundy now controlled all of continental Europe west of Poland, other than France. Well, you could say that, but it'd be quite a stretch. Yes, Charles V was certainly the grandson of Mary of Burgundy and great-great-grandson of Charles the Bold. He had a direct familial line to Philip the Bold, first of the great dukes of Burgundy. But the Burgundian dukes had direct lines you could trace to the first Valois king and to Hugh Capet, first Capetian king. 
And we're not sitting here saying France now controlled all of Europe. The European royal marriages made everyone related anyway. What Charles had done here was not enlarge Burgundy. Burgundy, despite the title being around, had pretty much ended when Mary married Maximilian. Burgundian territory became Habsburg territory, not the other way around. And his Burgundian inheritance was far from the most important part of Charles's holdings. Keep in mind we are also now including the New World in his territories. As prominent Belgian historian Henri Puren lamented in his article, The Formation and Constitution of the Burgundian State, 15th and 16th Centuries, in the American Historical Review, quote, of how little weight were the Netherlands in the political combinations of a prince who reigned at the same time in the empire and in Spain, and whose ambition had all Europe for its field, unquote. And so, what was once called the Burgundian Netherlands had turned into what was known as the Habsburg Netherlands. This would eventually split apart in a conflict that lasted eight decades and was covered here in a little thing I like to call the nine-episode series on the Dutch Revolt. But while Burgundy didn't last, Burgundian influence surely did. It lasted in a number of ways. First of all, if you picture the Spanish imperial flag, what comes to mind? The official Spanish flag was a combination of that of Castile and Aragon. However, what was often used, what probably comes to mind for many of you, is a flag with a sawtoothed red cross on it, tilted 45 degrees to form a red X on a white background. That flag has become a symbol of the Spanish monarchy, even if it wasn't their official flag. It was used as the basis for the flags of the viceroyalties of New Spain and of Peru. And you can see it today flying alongside the American and Puerto Rican flags above the fortress in Old San Juan. It was used by the Carlist faction during the civil wars in Spain in the 19th century. And that flag is still used on the tail fins of Spanish fighter jets today. That cross is actually called the Cross of Burgundy, the emblem of the Dukes of Burgundy, adopted initially by partisans of John the Fearless in Paris during the Burgundian Civil War against the Armagnacs. The tilted cross itself is known as the Cross of St. Andrew, and since St. Andrew was the patron saint of Burgundy, well, this probably explains how it started becoming the symbol of Burgundy. Perrin also points out that Charles did unite the 17 provinces, which is what the Burgundian holdings in the Netherlands had become. And that may be the real lasting legacy of the Dukes of Burgundy and their heirs. Because the unity of the Netherlands was not Charles V's responsibility, Credit for that goes to Philip the Bold, John the Fearless, Philip the Good, Charles the Bold, Mary the Rich, Emperor Maximilian, Philip the Fair, and then Charles V. It was a gradual, not inexorable, but certainly ever-progressing activity to which each made their contributions. See, it's easy to look at this story of the Golden Age of Burgundy and wonder, what if? What if they had succeeded in carving a nation out of the lands of Lotharingia, a real honest-to-goodness kingdom in between Germany and France, running from the Low Countries down to the Rhine, even in their wildest dreams into Savoy and Provence, cutting through the whole of the continent. Well, they didn't do that. And at first it appears that the Dukes didn't succeed in making Burgundy an independent state in any meaningful way. Except, in a way they did. Sure, they didn't recreate Lotharingia, but they created something While the Burgundian Netherlands were fighting for their privileges, 
they were still being consolidated by the Dukes. And when they opposed the Dukes, they found it easier to do so when they banded together. By the end of the reign of the Dukes of Burgundy, the Netherlands was a real thing. Letitia Baum, in her article, Burgundy and the Empire and the Reign of Charles the Bold, for the International History Review, wrote that Burgundy, quote, planted the roots of the national consolidation of the Dutch Netherlands and of their emancipation from Habsburg Spain, Burgundy's successor, unquote. The Dukes of Burgundy didn't succeed in their ultimate goal, but their dreams came to fruition in some aspects during the Dutch Revolt. An independent country was formed, eventually two were, in between the powerful states of France and Germany. They encompassed much of what the Burgundian holdings were, with the notable exception of the Duchy of Burgundy. And that in itself is something remarkable and noteworthy. The Netherlands was no longer a soggy corner of the Holy Roman Empire. It was its own place. And that was, in some part, thanks to the Dukes of Burgundy. Philip the Bold was a master statesman who bent France's direction to his own family's ends. He essentially ruled the kingdom for a time, and he set up Burgundy on its path towards independence. John the Fearless was unscrupulous, which made him somewhat similar to his contemporary noblemen, but he was also brilliant, which allowed him to surpass them. He was creative in his methods of gaining power, and he grew Burgundy's influence immensely. Philip the Good was not as bold nor as brilliant as his predecessors, but he was more than capable as a duke, and he grew Burgundy to a size probably unimagined by his grandfather. His long reign saw a massive increase in Burgundian holdings, as well as open war, then peace with France, giving that kingdom a chance to finally truly recover from the Hundred Years' War, and limiting Burgundy's chances at surpassing it in power. Charles the Bold was brave, intelligent, and innovative. He was also impatient, rash, and unaware of his own limitations. He had chances to expand Burgundy's power, but he lost everything, mucking about, probably unnecessarily, in the Upper Rhine region. None of these men were particularly scrupulous, and they spent much of their lives at best taking advantage of France, at worst directly opposing it. But their undermining of France's unity is a modern geopolitical interpretation which they likely wouldn't even understand. Comparable maybe only to the Habsburg Empire itself, which was carved out of the Holy Roman Empire, part of it in some places, outside of it in others, the state of Burgundy was something unique, something historically different from its neighbors. Despite their limitations, the Dukes of Burgundy helped create something remarkable in the history of Europe, and did help pave the way for states sitting outside of both France and Germany, which live on today. Well, that's it for this series and this season. I really hope you enjoyed it. Now I'm off to take another break, and then at some point start collecting stories and writing podcasts for next year, and I hope to be back once again in January to start a whole new season again. Thanks for listening.